0: Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through to verse 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us by your word, the Bible. We thank you that you have made it so easy for us to read it and that we have it in our own language. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand what it says and how it would shape our lives today. And I pray that you would help Rowan to speak both clearly and faithfully from the scriptures. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.
1: Thanks, Tim. Uh, It's a great privilege to be here with you at the EU public meeting. I do hope as we look at this Book of Acts that it is uh, really helpful for you, the EU has decided to make Acts the Book of the Year for them here in the EU. What that means is about half of all the public meetings we do this year will be taken from the Book of Acts, but we're not going to do it in one long hit. We'll do first three weeks and then we'll do another three weeks later in the semester and then we'll do another two sets of three weeks in semester two and between that the EU will be looking at other parts books of the bible and some other important topics uh, for christian living in the public meetings interspersed throughout the book of acts this year that's the plan now i've called the series that we'll do on the book of acts how jesus got famous you might be saying well Jesus is pretty famous, but hasn't he always been famous? And the answer is actually no. In fact, Jesus comes in a long line of people who were never famous during their lifetime. Uh, for instance, you may know this man, Vincent van Gogh. Uh, now, Vincent painted 2,000 well, painted or drew 2,100 pieces of art in his lifetime. 2,100. That is a lot of pieces of art in his lifetime. But by the time he died, he had sold only one painting. 2,100 pieces of art, managed to sell one. And then he died. He was not terribly well known. Died in relative obscurity, in fact. But nowadays, if you wanted to buy one of Vincent's paintings, be prepared potentially to spend more than $50 million for one painting. So how did Vincent, dying in relative obscurity, manage to become so famous? Well, if you go back, and the art historians will be able to tell you, what seemed to be key in taking him from obscurity to fame was that in a window sort of between 10 to 20 years after he died, a number of uh, galleries held art retrospectives where they showed some of Vincent's work those particular retrospective exhibitions were very influential and influenced lots of other artists and then Vincent's work took off and, in fact, a whole movement sort of started out of him. And so out of that sort of work, Vincent went from obscurity to fame, even though he died. What about this guy, John Keats? Hand up if you've ever read a John Keats poem. Oh, come on, not even to a girlfriend, boyfriend? Like, no... <laughs> It's it's well worth it, just a little tip for you. Um, John Keats, one of the most famous of English poets, a little bit of his famous Ode to Autumn there, you can see the first two lines. Um, John Keats died at age 25. So if you're approaching 25, I hope you've made your mark on the world. Because Keats died uh, tragically at age 25 in his lifetime he had published three volumes, small volumes of poetry, just three volumes, but those three volumes, the total number of copies sold is estimated to be about 200. So let's, at the most optimistic, we're saying 200 people had purchased a copy of Keats's poetry before he died. But now one of the most famous of all English poets, how did he move from really very little known about him to then being famous the world over? Well, it turns out what, what was key was another poet by the name of Shelley, who was a friend of Keats, was, a, was you know, struck by the tragedy of Keats' death and really thought Keats' poetry was awesome. Shelley wrote a poem soon after Keats died um, in memory of Keats and this poem went viral, if you can go viral before the internet, but it took off and really it cemented Keats' fame. And everyone then went and wanted to read Keith's poetry because Shelley was so, fanta- so you know, lauding it with such high praise. So Keats went from obscurity to fame. Well, what about Jesus of Nazareth? How did Jesus of Nazareth go from obscurity to fame? And he was, when he died, relatively obscure. In fact, we know from historians who have told us that soon after Jesus' death, the total number of followers of Jesus was 120, about 120. That's about the number of people in this room. That's it for the whole world, the number of people following Jesus when he died, about this group. That's it. That's not a lot of people. In fact, they could fit, like we are today, in one room, we know. And yet today, total number of people who claim to be Christians, followers of Jesus, is $2 Two billion. You'll find Christians in every country around the world. How did Jesus go from relative obscurity to fame? How did he get famous? That's what we're going to explore a little bit today and over the weeks as we look at this book of Acts. And uh, we're going to look today at the beginning of the book of Acts, just the first 11 verses or so. So it be helpful if you've got a Bible, you can get that out. Always, We'll be always speaking from the Bible at EU public meetings, so it's worthwhile bringing. Or call it up on your phone If you're not sure where to go to find it on your phone, uh, just get onto the net and go to BibleGateway.com and you can find a version of the Bible there that'll help you. Uh, If you've got it, let's open it up and have a little bit of a look. Acts chapter 1, just starting at the first verse. Luke, the author, writes, he says, in my former book, Theophilus, now Theophilus, which sounds like a weird name, but Theophilus was just the guy he's dedicating this work to, which was the, the way you did things back in the day, right? In my former book, so clearly Luke has written an earlier book, This we're jumping here at volume two. This is jumping in at Catching Fire when you haven't read Hunger Games, or jumping in at Chamber of Secrets when you haven't read whatever was volume one in the Harry Potter <laughs> series, Philosopher's Stone, right? That's what this is. We're jumping in at volume two. Now, consequence of that is... If you're just jumping in here, you never read the Bible before, you've never read the New Testament before, you're jumping in here, there's going to be some stuff that you won't be familiar with because you haven't read Volume 1. Volume 1, written by Luke, is called Luke. <laughs> so it's not hard to work out, right? Luke wrote both Luke and Acts and he's referencing here that he had a former work where he talked about, he says, all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. So I would encourage you, if you're not familiar with the New Testament, a great place to start, better than even the book of Acts, is the book of Luke. Go to volume 1. In fact, the EU has a bit of a campaign this year, which we're calling Uncover. We want to encourage the whole campus to uncover the real Jesus by reading the Gospel of Luke. You'll hear more about this if you hang out with the EU over the course of the year. We would love every single person on the campus to read the book of Luke in the Christian New Testament. Because if they do that, they will meet the Lord Jesus. They will, they will learn of him, they will hear of his teachings, they will learn of his death and his resurrection by reading just the book of Luke. And it's not terribly long. So we would encourage everybody this year to uncover the real Jesus by reading the Gospel of Luke, the book of Luke. So we decided in public meetings not to do Luke because we're hoping everyone's going to read Luke. We decided we'd do volume two, we'd do Acts In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So now we're going to get to the heart of it. How did Jesus get famous? Okay, here's the first answer. He got famous by coming back from the dead. That's a pretty good way to start like a career of fame, I guess, come back from the dead. You're, You're killed, in Jesus' case, he was crucified terribly. He was buried, in his case, put into a tomb. And three days later, Jesus walked out of the tomb. That is a pretty astounding claim, I know. But if he actually did it, that's a pretty good way to start to get famous, don't you think? You could try pulling that one off. Might be a bit hard, mightn't it? Let's read what to what Luke says here, verse 3. He says, After Jesus' suffering, he showed himself to these men, the apostles, his closest followers, and gave them conv- many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days And spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, you can imagine, if you'd been one of Jesus' closest followers, you'd spent three years hanging out with this guy while he taught the crowds and did amazing miracles. You'd spent three years with him, but it all ended terribly, it seemed to you, when he was crucified by the Romans as a criminal outside Jerusalem. And now, the Romans knew what they were doing, right? They crucified thousands of people, the historians will tell you. Thousands of people. They knew how to kill people. They crucified Jesus and you would think if you were one of his closest followers, well, maybe that was the end. But then, a few days later, Jesus appears amongst you. You see Jesus. He holds out his hands. He eats some stuff in your presence. You'd be thinking, I saw this guy die. Now he's alive. What's happened here? Am I hallucinating? Is this Some sort of apparition? Is is it by seeing some sort of spirit? Or so Jesus? Notice there, Luke says, he he showed himself to these men and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. I wonder what those proofs would have been. How do you prove to someone that you're really alive when they think you should be dead? Come on, punch me. Come on, touch me. I'm real. I'm real. It'd be nice to know what some of the proofs were, wasn't it? Well, actually, you you can know. You've just got to go back to Volume 1. If you go back to Volume 1 and the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 24, which is the final chapter of Luke's Gospel, he details some of these convincing proofs. That Jesus indeed said, Look, it's me. You can see the marks in my hands and side where they crucified me. Touch me. Put your hand in there. Feel me. I'm real. You got something to eat? Give me that piece of fish. I'll eat it. I'll eat it for you. If I'm a ghost, it'll just drop through to the floor, won't it? But no, look. Stomach. I got a stomach. I'm alive. He gave the many convincing proofs that he was indeed alive. Now, if you're not yet a Christian person, you're thinking about this. You're thinking, okay, dead, three days later, alive again. That doesn't happen. That cannot happen. That's just, just rubbish. That just can't be true. I would encourage you Check it out. As a fact of history, the resurrection of Jesus stands up. You don't have to leave your brain aside when you become a Christian. You don't have to go, okay, so now I've got to start believing things that any rational person wouldn't believe. No. Christians uphold history. We uphold science. We uphold economics. We uphold all of these disciplines and say, no, no, these are good things in the world. And if you bring your mind to bear onto the historical data, the resurrection of Jesus, as incredible as it is, it actually stands the test of historical investigation. If you don't believe me, maybe you should read Volume 1. Read Volume 1 and read about Jesus. And if you have not checked it out, take your little Connect card and say, I'd like to check out this crazy claim that Jesus rose from the dead. That sounds stupid. Or just write, that sounds stupid. We'll know what you're talking about. Just write that, give us your details. We would love just to connect you with a Bible, maybe sit down and talk with you if that's helpful to you. Check out the claim about Jesus, that he really rose from the dead. Christianity stands or falls on that claim, so it's worth your investigation. That's the first thing Jesus did to get famous. He walked out of his tomb. He rose from the dead. However, as amazing as it is, to rise from the dead, what really helped make him famous was what that resurrection signified. I'll give you an example of what I mean. If I tell you, ah, there was this woman, young woman, her name was Liz, and one day she sat on a chair and someone put a hat on her head. You're going, okay, that's a great story, Rowan. Thank you very much for that. Doesn't mean much to you, right? Until I tell you what was significant about that hatting ceremony. Because her name was actually Elizabeth Windsor, and the chair that she sat on was actually a throne in an English cathedral. And what was put on her head was not just any old hat, but it was a crown. And you're going, oh, right, so that hatting ceremony. That, the great significance of that hatting ceremony was that she was being made monarch, a ruler, a, a queen of the English realm. Right? You get the significance that came in the event. What really helped make Jesus famous was not that he just rose from the dead. I mean that might just be a great party trick. What made him famous was what that resurrection signified. So what did that signify? Okay, so what Jesus' resurrection really meant, and which made Jesus famous, was that that meant the kingdom of God had arrived. What is this phrase, the kingdom of God, about? What's, what, what's the kingdom of God about? Okay, well, I need to fill you in on a little bit of a backstory here. Uh, the kingdom of God basically refers to the rule of God. The reign, R-E-I-G-N, right? The reign of God, the rule of God. When God is king and he rules, what's it like when God rules? Well, because the Christian Bible tells us that God is love, that God is good, that God is merciful and compassionate, when God rules, that means life is as it ought to be. That's what that means, because God is good and God is love. Life is as it ought to be. Life is as God intends. And what that means is that wickedness and evil is done away with. It means the suffering are lifted up and that there is no more pain, no more suffering, no more crying, no more tears. That's what it's like when the kingdom of God is established. Now, if you 've read through the Christian Bible, if you 've read the Old Testament and the New Testament, you will know that that promise that God would make things right, that He would establish his rule, that is in some way the big story of the Bible, going right back from God when He created the world, he created the universe with good intentions for it, that then God tragically destroyed by human rebellion against God the rest of the Bible is a story of how God re-establishes his good purposes for his creatures, for his creation, by establishing his kingdom. That follows all the way through the Bible. And you'll notice if you read volume 1, if you read Luke's Gospel, Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of God. In fact, we can trace it out. When Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus says the reason I have been sent from God the Father was to proclaim the kingdom of God, to proclaim this kingdom, to announce this kingdom. In fact, a bit later, he tells his apostles to go out and tell people that the kingdom of God is near. The promised day when God would establish his rule and make things right, that day was coming really, really soon. So Jesus came announcing this message. The Kingdom of God is coming, it is near. And as you read through Volume 1, Luke's Gospel, you'll realise that when was it actually going to arrive though? When was it actually going to get established? And you realise by reading through Luke that Jesus understood that it was in his own death and in his resurrection that the Kingdom of God would be established. You can catch a little, we're going to talk more about this as the weeks go on, but you can catch a little glimpse of how that could be true because you think when Jesus walked out of that tomb, when he was raised from the dead, why was that such a good thing? Why is it a good thing that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead? Because what it says is, death is not the end. See, death really is the tragic full stop, at the end of everyone's life. Death, if you like, is the tsunami that none of us can escape. I know we don't like to think about it, we're young, we've got a whole life ahead of us, we hope, and yes, we don't, but but the truth of the matter is, isn't it? That we will all die. That is not a good thing. (laughs) God does not want our life to end in death. He does not want our life to end. And the good news, the good thing that God was doing when he rose Jesus from the dead, when he raised him from the dead, was that he said, death will not be the victor. I will raise Jesus from the grave as the first one to experience the full extent of my love and goodness. So you can see a little bit, just a little bit, glimpse of how God is establishing His good rule when Jesus rises from the dead. And Jesus rises from the dead, we launch into Volume Two, which is the Book of Acts, and this teaching about the kingdom of God frames the whole book of Acts. Uh, it's a theme that you can find both in the first chapter and the last chapter of the Book of Acts. Luke has deliberately, I think, written it like this, so you know the big theme is the Kingdom of God. We read two references to it there in Acts chapter 1 uh, in verse 3. Jesus appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the Kingdom of God. Why is he speaking about the Kingdom of God if he's just been raised from the dead? Because that means that the Kingdom of God has now arrived. So for 40 days he appeared to them, showed he really was alive and taught them about the Kingdom of God because now it had arrived. But if you jump right through to the end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28... You can see that Luke finishes the book with two more references. Acts chapter 28, verse 23, talking about Paul, who will meet in a few weeks' time. Paul explained, uh, from morning till evening, Paul explained and declared to them the kingdom of God, and tried to convince them about Jesus. Why are those two ideas connected? Because in Jesus, in his death and resurrection, you have the arrival of the kingdom of God, Or down to the very last verse, verse 31 of the whole book. Boldly and without hindrance, Paul preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus, yes, became famous because, yes, he was raised from the dead. But secondly, because in his resurrection, the kingdom of God had arrived. And that's a big deal because that, the resurrection from the dead and the, what the meaning that that has, the kingdom has arrived, that was the big hope for God's Old Testament people, the nation of Israel. They had been looking forward to the day when God would establish his kingdom, signalled in the resurrection from the dead. And so when Jesus is raised from the dead, that means that the great hope of God's Old Testament people has now arrived. But further than that, the resurrection actually also then identifies Jesus as the king in that kingdom, as the Christ or the Messiah, the anointed one in God's plans. And so you can see that this is made clear when you get to Acts chapter 2, which we'll look at next week. You can see that they identify the fact, the fact that Jesus was the one who's first been raised, that then says he is the king in God's kingdom. So it identifies who Jesus is. So all of that has contributed to Jesus' fame, not just that he was raised from the dead, but that he is now the king in God's kingdom. But there's more that we can say about this as well. So I just want to pause there for a moment though. I just think what I've tried to outline very fast for you there is a big story, right? I've gone right back to creation. I've talked about God's plans to bring a kingdom. I've, Jesus placing that plan. It's a big story, right? And I thought just because it's the first public meeting of the year and many of you don't know me yet and I don't know you yet, I thought would introduce myself a little bit just at this point by telling you a bit about my story, right? Here's my story. Um, that's me at age six weeks. Uh, I know the photo is so ridiculously cute, you might think that I've downloaded it from the internet, but no, that's actually me. Uh, I was a very, very cute baby, um, which is probably why my parents went on and had other children. Um, why not? If your first one comes out like that, isn't that awesome? <laughs> Uh, tragically, and I, I can see that it's different for you, but tragically for me, that was the high point of my beauty, uh, and it was pretty much downhill from there. And I have the evidence to show you. Um, so this is me a bit later on in life. That's me sitting with my sister and my teddy bear, um, and that's me on the tricycle. Um, I was an awesome tricycle rider, and it was the 70s, right? Which explains some of the fashion, uh, some of the things I'm wearing, and. Um, you need to know it's the 70s, and you need to know that the 70s was very fashion challenged to cope with the next photo that I'm about to show you, um, which is from a similar time in my life. Um, don't you love the leopard print swimmers? Anyone here got leopard print sw- Don't tell me. Um, that's me in my backyard. My parents are lovely, lovely people, uh, still alive today, uh, but they're cheap, and that. Instead of taking me to the pool, they gave me a bucket. (laughs) But I look happy, so I had a happy childhood. Um, But as I said, uh, beauty continued to elude me. After that, uh, there's me in high school. (laughs) Year nine, just grin and bear it. That was my experience of high school. I don't know what yours was like. Uh, High school, I came to uni, decided to change my image. (laughs) I know it's hard to believe. Given my current follically challenged existence, um, yeah, that's not Photoshop. That is the real deal. That was taken the day before, and no, that was taken the day, the day that it was all cut off. Um, uh, I'd had a, a, a difficult um, thing happen in my life, as and as sometimes you do when a difficult thing happens. You're like, oh, I'm going to cut off all my hair. Um, and so I went to a hairdresser on uni uh, at uni that day and said, please, can you cut off all my hair? And she said, no, I won't do that. I said, what are you talking about? I'm paying you money. Like, just cut off my hair. And she said, no, I I refuse to cut off your hair. And I said, well, so we had to negotiate. And so she did eventually cut it off. But uh, what she did was she put it into a plait. I'd never had my hair plaited. She plaited it. And she chopped off the plait and gave me the plait. (laughs) Which I still have. (laughs) Just don't tell my wife. It's just... Hidden in an airlock bag in a very secure location, um, which is a bit gross. I should really just chuck that out, I think. but anyway, it's been there a long time. Um, uh, I, despite that, I got married, um, and we got met here at Sydney Uni. In fact, we met through the EU. and uh, you know, so we had some photos in the quad when we got married. Uh, we like been married for 20 years now. We've had some children. We had three kids who are awesome. And they were so awesome, we had three more. uh, Two more. Um, (laughs) It's hard to count after four. Um, And so we got five kids, uh, and that's what they look like when they're all smaller. That's what we look like now as a family. (laughs) And that's, that's my story, right? That's a little bit of my story, I guess. So that story I've just told you, well, I could paint a broader picture of that story couldn't I like I could say well I didn't talk about the fact that I've been born in Australia that's actually quite a, that's had a massive impact on my life really that I was born in this country and not another country I could talk about the fact that uh, growing up in Australia means that I've largely been influenced from from birth by the greek philosophical tradition right that western philosophical transi- tradition that really has affected how i think i think at quite deep levels that i'm not even aware of i could talk about the fact that i've grown up in a very rich country and really by god's grace i've never really had a single day of my life where i've been in real terrible want that uh, there's a broader context to my story right so i wonder what your story is You have a story, obviously. I wonder what your story is. I hope that I can get to hear your story over this year as we get to know each other, hear your story, but I'd also like to know how does your story fit into the broader story? But I'm not talking about what country you were born in. I'm not talking about what philosophical tradition has influenced your thought patterns. I want to know how your story fits in the biggest story the big story that I was telling before of what God is doing in the world. How does your story fit within God's story? Where God has said, what I'm going to do is establish my kingdom, where evil and wickedness will be done away with, and as a good and loving and merciful, compassionate God, where I will make things as they ought to be. How does your story that your fit in with that story and you might be saying well I don't oh, I'm just living my life buddy like I'm just I'm just rocking up to uni just doing my thing I'm working my job I'm just I'm just I don't I have no idea how it fits into that big story. But let me tell you why I think that matters. That's a question that's worth pondering is because if if your story doesn't fit into God's story you really are swimming against the current, aren't you? You really are swimming against the tide because if it comes to your story and God's story, I know which one will win out. It'll be God's story, won't it? He's the one with the power to make his story happen. So if you're swimming against God's story, it's not really like swimming against a current or swimming against a tide. It's like trying to swim up up a waterfall. It ain't going to work. God's story is a great story. It's a fantastic story. When you understand his story, you want his story to win. My question is, have you aligned your life with his story? His story that focuses on Jesus as the one in whom the kingdom of God is established. How did Jesus get famous? He walked out of the grave. He established the kingdom of God. Thirdly, in that kingdom, he is the king that is still ruling today. If you have a look there, notice here in Acts chapter 1, down there in verse 9. After Jesus had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hit him from their sight. If you want to understand the significance of the cloud, you need to go back to the Old Testament, read Daniel chapter 7. That will help make it clear for you. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken away from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now when you read through the rest of the book of Acts, uh, Jesus doesn't seem to appear very often. He's not there. Why? Because as you see here, he's been taken into heaven. He's seated at the Father's, God the Father's right hand. So we're told here there will be a moment when he comes back. Now by the time you get to the end of the book of Acts, has he come back yet? No. Has he come back yet? 2,000 years later? No. We are still in that same phase, right? Jesus has been taken up, but he will come back. So what's he doing there? What is he doing in heaven? Is he just sitting around waiting? Is he just sort of having a bit of a holiday by the beach in heaven? We're just waiting for whenever God the Father says, okay, time to get back down there. Is that what's going on? No, 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 no. If you read through the book of Acts carefully, you will see Jesus is the living and ruling king. All through the book of Acts, even though Jesus is not physically present with them, Jesus is always involved in what's happening. Even later in this chapter, when they have to replace one of the 12 closest apostles, they get two good candidates. They can't make up their mind. So what do they do? They say, we'll just draw straws. We'll cast lots. Which one? And Lord, meaning Lord Jesus, you choose. They believe Jesus is active even as they draw lots for who should replace Judas. All throughout the book of Acts, God's people are praying to Jesus and Jesus is responding to their prayers. Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit upon them and guides the mission that he has put them on. Jesus is active all the way through this book of Acts. In fact, sometimes the book of Acts, I mean, it's, its traditional name is Acts of the Apostles, the 12 closest followers of Jesus. But really, we should call it Acts of the Ascended Jesus through his followers empowered by the Spirit. That's what the book should be called. That more accurately reflects what's going on, which is probably why they just call it Acts, right? Because that gets a bit complicated. But here's the point. I don't know what you think about this person, Jesus. But let me tell you this. What that truth tells us is that Jesus is not a concept. Jesus is a person. Jesus is alive. Jesus is not just a philosophical person from history, not just a person who was a teacher who had an interesting set of ideas who you might then go and choose to study. No, Jesus is not just a concept. Jesus is alive today and ruling. He is ruling in his kingdom. That's who we as Christians believe Jesus is. That is a, that is a truth of profound daily significance it is enormously comforting and very encouraging so whenever i don't know what you've got next today right whether you're just going to head straight to hermans and you know settle in for the afternoon or whether you're going to a lecture or whatever you've got next but you know as you walk there jesus is alive he's alive and ruling When you go home today, to whatever situation you are at home, whether it's living on your own or with your family or just with some flatmates or your husband or your wife, whatever it is, and no matter how your relationships are going in the household at the moment, let me tell you, you know what? Jesus is alive and he is ruling. It affects everything. And you know, as we read through the book of Acts, There is enormous comfort drawn from this truth because God's people do not always have an easy time in the world. We saw those Christian brothers brothers who were executed at the hands of IS recently, beheaded terribly, right? But Jesus is alive despite what we see happening in the world and he is ruling despite the opposition and the fact that Jesus is alive gives all of us comfort and encouragement to keep on following him. Jesus is not a concept. He's alive and ruling. There's more that we could say because the Bible is a rich, rich book. There's another whole reason we could explore. He's not just alive and ruling. He's got a global action plan. It's not a new plan. It's an old plan that goes right back to the Old Testament. You can chase out the references in Isaiah there. It's a plan that is in action across the world from Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. It's a plan in action here on the campus through the EU. It's a plan in action to go from the EU out to all the world. Lots more we could say, but I'm out of time. I'll see you next week.